Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The first full day of Joe Biden's presidency was all about coronavirus. His singular focus there led him to sign 10 executive orders aimed at accelerating the rollout of vaccines by using the Defense Production Act, supporting state and local governments to help them in their responses, and mandating mask wearing. Also on the list, restoring faith in the government. For more on Joe Biden's COVID plan, we'll speak to Will Fewer, health and science reporter at CNBC. So like you mentioned, it's 10 total. Some of the highlights here are he's establishing a federal panel to introduce more COVID-19 diagnostic tests to the market. And he really wants to ramp up COVID-19 testing that's available. Uh, he's putting in some place some more restrictions, like requiring masks in airports, trains, inner city buses, and really all modes of transportation directing agencies, like you said, to bolster the supply chain through the use of the Defense Production Act, uh, which is a wartime measure that you know the president can use to compel U.S. companies to prioritize manufacturing that is deemed crucial to security. He's also introducing the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which is just a real signal that he's going to emphasize equity here. And that really, uh, we're still working through the details of exactly what these things are going to do. He just put out the full 200-page plan about an hour ago. So still working through the details, but obviously the message there is that panel is going to be responsible for making sure that resources are allocated based on which communities have been impacted the most by the pandemic. Now, some of the reporting that we had been seeing was that the administration came in and there was really no coronavirus vaccine distribution plan from the Trump administration. So in a lot of respects, they're going to have to start from scratch. Obviously, from the Trump administration, we had Operation Warp Speed, which in a sense was a huge success. We got two vaccines out of that. But the distribution and all that stuff really stopped when it was sent out to the states. From there, the states had to do a lot of their own planning and distribution from that. So one of these other executive orders that the president signed had to do a lot with state and local support and really helping kind of guide Mm -hmm. them into distributing the vaccines. We also are going to take immediate steps to partner with governors, mayors and other local officials who we've been talking to all along who are on the front lines of this fight. We, direct, we, we directed FEMA to establish a COVID response liaison for each state, which means every state will have a point person at the federal level to maximize cooperation between the federal government and the states. And where it falls short to be made known about it, it may be made known immediately. This is a model we use to respond to Hurricane, Hurricane Sandy, which I was deeply involved with. And in just a few moments, I'm going to sign a declaration to immediately begin reimbursing states 100 percent for the use of their National Guards to help COVID relief efforts. So that was probably really the biggest departure here that we're seeing from what was being done under the Trump administration. There were reports today, you know, about how the Biden administration was really starting from scratch. I don't know how fair that is. Dr. Tony Fauci was out today at the White House press briefing saying that obviously they're not starting completely from scratch. Right. Uh, we have administered about 16 million doses. So there is something in place. But today, you know, when I spoke with local health officials across the country, certainly the level of support they're now seeing and the guidance that they expect to get from the federal government on how to administer doses, on what kind of allocations they're getting, on what to tell their people and their hospitals and pharmacies, 
clearly there's a stepped up level of involvement from the federal government here that has been absent throughout not just the vaccine distribution and rollout, but throughout all realms of the pandemic under the Trump administration. We had been hearing a lot of that from state and local officials, even as far back as when it came to testing. You know, we need more guidance and more help from the federal government, and they just weren't seeing it. But one of the other things, too, is, you know, we've heard a lot about these mask mandates and whatnot. We heard a little bit about it on day one of the Biden presidency, too. But he did sign an executive order asking uh, or requiring people to wear masks on federal property. But also when it comes to transportation, too, he wants people to wear masks pretty much all the time. So it's not clear exactly which modes of transportation this is going to apply to. He said many, I believe the wording in the order was actually many trains, buses, aircrafts and inner city buses. But I think it's safe to assume that's going to be most modes of public transportation. So he is requiring people to wear masks and practice social distancing in those kinds of environments. And for international travel, really notably, the CDC has been pushing for this for a long time, that he is now requiring incoming travelers to test negative for COVID-19 or to self-quarantine and self-isolate upon arrival in the U.S. Reopening schools and businesses. Obviously, Mm. schools has been such a huge component of all of this. We saw schools open and shut down almost immediately in a lot of cases. Some schools remained open the entire time. But this is a key priority for the Biden administration also. They really emphasize that as they're rolling out the vaccine, as they're encouraging people to follow public health precautions, they are working actively to reopen schools, reopen businesses, and reopen travel as well but only to do so safely. And so one really interesting thing they're doing here is they are requiring the Department of Health and Human Services to collect data on school reopenings and to really figure out what we know and what we don't know about the role that schools play in spreading COVID-19 in communities. And that's interesting because that's something that hasn't been done so far in the U.S. and really has, has only been done in a very limited fashion in other countries as well. So we still don't really know how much of the virus spreads in schools And how much of that virus is brought from schools then out back into the community and vice versa. So it'll be interesting to see what we get from these studies. And again, kind of just the overarching guidance really for schools, businesses, states, as we mentioned, local communities on how to kind of approach some of the stuff, something that we hadn't seen before. So there's a lot of stuff in there, obviously things about uh, new treatments, testing, as you mentioned. But we're also seeing that, you know, President Biden is already getting a little bit of pushback on his COVID relief plan. It clocks in at, uh, I think, $1.9 trillion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's already some Republicans opposing to it, saying, is there really need for another bill? We just passed one. For the Biden administration, they're saying, you know, hell yes, we need a lot more, including more direct payments to Americans. So this is kind of, you know, the fight that's setting up. The margins are very narrow in the House and the Senate. The money is, it's a lot of money. And like always, you know, someone has to pay for it. So he's asking for the COVID relief bill right now, I think stands at $1.9 trillion. Whether he gets that through, it looks unlikely, I think, at this moment. And I do think that, you know, he's setting himself up to have some negotiating room here. One thing, for example, I know my colleagues today, Tom Frank and Jacob Framick uh, at CNBC, they reported today that potentially he's using uh, that initial plan includes $2,000 direct payments to Americans. And there's nothing that's really tying him to $2,000. And in fact, it was former President Donald Trump who actually pushed for that $2,000 direct payment. So that could potentially be one lever to pull in the negotiations with the Republicans saying, well, do we really need $2,000 here? That's one way to bring the $1.9 trillion figure down. Right. Well, a lot of stuff to go through. Hopefully we do get some effective plans pushed through and, and we'll see what happens with all of it. Will Fewer, health and science reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar.
Finally for this week, we'll look at what could be the future of high-end discount shopping. Luxury mystery boxes. A new solution for selling overstock and off-season clothing has emerged in these mystery boxes, which can sell anywhere from $700 to $2,000. The only catch is that you don't know what's in the box until you open it. The high-end merch in these boxes is said to be two to three times the retail value of the box, but there's a chance it could always be a bust. For more on what these mystery boxes mean for the fashion economy, we'll speak to Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So this whole notion is kind of driven around this idea that there's a lot of merchandise floating around out there in the retail space in the fashion world. You know, you go to any given store, you know, particularly here in America, and there's sales happening all the time. You hear from brands, they're having promotions all the time. But there's also this kind of cross section, this kind of world of the fashion space that has all this surplus merchandise. It's kind of, again, just floating out there. And some of that is driven, you know, in the past year by the pandemic, you know, particularly early on in the pandemic, there was a, a significant amount of brands were kind of noticing that, you know, people just weren't buying stuff. Um, there was not a need for, you know, higher fashion items. There was not a need, you know, for, for, for these kind of things that might make a statement out on the street. So these brands kind of saw themselves holding the bag a little bit on, on some of this merchandise. Now, to be sure, this is not a, a you know, COVID phenomenon. This is a topic that has been within fashion forever. What do you do with excess merchandise? You know, brands produce and they try really hard to produce to meet demand. Sometimes their supply outpaces that. So in the past, you know, we've seen brands, distributors, factories, even, you know, other department stores offloading merchandise or kind of selling merchandise through you know, a discount retailer like a Century 21 or a Steinmart or, you know, something like the Guilt Group for a time was really qu quite good at this on, on the Internet. What's happening now is this interesting marketplace where there's a lot of young folks, and I'm going to say young men in particular because it seems to be, you know, most appealing to men. But, but these, these two companies, Heat and Scarce, that have emerged in the past year or so, they will market to both men and women. And their focus is really on this section of brands that we kind of call, you know, luxury streetwear. It's brands like Off-White, Casablanca, Rude, Palm Angels, Amiri. And it's kind of this aesthetic of hoodies and bomber jackets and graphically printed jeans and things of this nature. So kind of what you would deem, you know, mildly ostentatious clothing that's designed <laughs> to be worn on the street. It's not necessarily designed to be worn in a boardroom. Right, right. Um, and, that clothing is now through these companies being discounted and packaged in a way that the buyer doesn't know what they're getting. So you're buying a box at a certain price tier, you know, that's around $700, it's around $2,000. And in it, you're going to get one to three items or four to eight items, something along that those lines. And really, you could open that box and it could be a pair of socks and a pair of jeans. Um, or you could open it and, you know, if you fit a higher tier, it could be a jacket, a sweater, jeans, and, 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 you know, more enticing items there. What really this whole thing is doing is preying on or appealing to, rather, to, to use a kinder term, what I would deem to be a real brand bias for this consumer. They want the brand. Right. They're really keen on getting you know, off-white. They're really keen on getting palm angels. And, and these brands might not be familiar at all to your listener, but they have a lot of clout within this fashion space. So to them, it's like, you know, I will pay whatever. I don't know what I'm really getting. I have an option to select my absolute favorite brand. 
And these companies say they'll do their best to put one item from that brand on that list in the box. And, you know, they're probably going to be happy regardless. They just kind of want that brand name. These companies do offer returns. Mm. The company Heat says they get about 10 to 15 percent of boxes returned. Scarce says about 5 percent return rate. So it's not like you're stuck with the items, but if you're going to return something, you got to return the whole box. So you don't get to keep just a little bit of it. And as you mentioned, you know, one of these boxes can be 700 bucks. Another box can be about $2,000. And I would say in this age of we've become as, as internet consumers so used to, oh, you know, free returns and really easy returns and things of that nature. These returns are a little bit complex. You know, they, you have to return the whole thing. You have to pay for the shipping fee. So it is a little bit of a risk. Now, to that end, these customers that have bought from these services, they like that risk. They kind of, there's something about that that is really enticing to them. The secondhand market for this form of clothing is pretty robust. You know, you can go on sites like Grailed or eBay or Depop or The Real Real and find these brands and find items from them that are cheaper than retail. They're going to be older items. They're not going to be brand new. They might not have the tags on it, things of that nature. But you can find these brands for cheaper elsewhere. What this whole model does is it has this kind of gamified appeal to it. And one thing that I kind of noticed and and, and that has been, you know, in my reporter's notebook for some time is this idea of unboxing videos on YouTube. And again, it might not be something that your listener is 100% familiar with, but on YouTube, there's this whole world of unboxing videos and, you know, they can be for any kind of consumer item. You know, there's a very famous story about a kid, a very young kid who he opens like children's toys and has millions of views. Yeah. Ryan, I think his name is Ryan or something like that. Correct. And you're right. I went through some of these videos, these unboxing videos, the people that are buying it get very excited when they get that one lucky item. There's even a whole thing of people reacting to the unboxing video saying, well, this one's probably not worth it. Or, hey, you got a handbag and you got something else. It is totally worth it. So it is kind of uh, has this own online presence of its own. In the end, I just want to ask, though, so what does this say about the fashion economy in this sense? People, like you mentioned, maybe primarily young men are really attached Mm -hmm. to some of these high-end brands. But what else does it signal for the fashion economy? Well, what it signals is, is, is kind of, one, this brand attachment, and this is something that we've kind of been watching in the fashion industry for a while. Uh, you know, you might remember or have, you know, heard tell of, you know, back in the 1980s and, and, and kind of into the, into the 90s a little bit within the high fashion space, people were very logo-driven. There was a lot of logo mania happening. They like to get the brand. They like to show off the brand. They were really keen on that. This isn't quite what we're seeing in terms of, you know, just saying, look at me, I've got my Gucci belt, or look at me, I've got my Ferragamo loafers. There's a little bit higher thought that goes into this. It's, it's more like these these consumers are really happy to just buy into the brand vision. You know, whatever they can get from the brand, they know it's going to embody the certain aesthetic that they're going for. And I will say often that aesthetic is kind of coming from somewhere in pop culture or something they've seen seen on Instagram. You know, they saw someone, they like wearing this clothing or, or like wearing this brand and they really want to get in on it. But what it also kind of tells us is this idea that newness might not be a real driving factor anymore. What I mean by that is, is, you know, contrary to a Century 21 or a Steinmark or things of this nature, a filings basement, Nordstrom rack, you go in and the clothes are laid out pretty poorly. 
and they're not very romantic. You know, you're kind of looking at the bedraggled <laughs> remains of yeah. a couple seasons ago or, you know, a couple of years ago or even a few months ago. And there's really little care. It's like it's gone from that main department store where it was new and shiny to suddenly it's lost all of its luster. What these brands are pretty good at, Heat and Scarce, these two companies, is packaging this stuff and really making it look enticing. Their Instagram super slick. They've partnered with some, you know, quote unquote, cool influencers that have a big reach and have made these brands kind of seem sexy in a way with, with you know, the way that they're presenting this material, that you know, presenting these items. But in terms of how the consumer is actually responding, you know, I spoke to some of these customers and in a couple of cases, I would ask them, you know, do you think at all this is strange or this is weird that you're buying used or not used? I'm sorry, you're buying old merchandise that you're effectively buying something that is not, you know, the hottest thing off the runway. It might be a few months old. It might be a couple of years old. And they didn't care at all. Didn't even seem to cross their mind. And I think that that's an interesting reflection of where we've gotten to with where a lot of young people are shopping for this type of clothing. You know, again, there's all of these resale sites and all of these secondhand sites out there. And there's this whole big conversation within high fashion right now that's not about vintage. No one, pe- people don't really like to use the word vintage, but they love using the word archival. You know, it's like we've <laughs> yeah. gone from like, like, you know, it's all you know, in the you branding from and like, repackaging of it. <laughs> it's, it. It's all in the branding. You know, you go from like antique to thrifted to, vr- to vintage, and yeah. now we're on to archival. And it's this idea that you're buying this clothing and the fact that it's in the past, the fact that it might not be even accessible now actually has a lot of weight to this section of consumer. And this guy I interviewed, Devin Knight, one of the customers, he bought, you know, a couple boxes off of heat and he had said, you know, what I liked about it was this idea that I was getting something that didn't have to necessarily be new, that, you know, someone might not be able to have. And this was kind of what he was saying was this notion that you couldn't walk into, you know, Nordstrom's or you couldn't go onto a boutique website like Essence right now and see the same clothes. I thought that was really interesting. This isn't even, we're not even talking a year, five years, 10 years, we're talking a matter of months even that this hasn't been in a store. And he was really keen on it because it showed to him that this brand that he liked, it was something that not everyone would necessarily have. Wow. I mean, well, the whole thing is interesting. As I said, I went down the hole of the unboxing videos. It's kind of fun to watch, you know, the excitement yeah. and then kind of the duds that sometimes you get out there. But uh, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, other brands or other uh, retailers, other companies try to pick up some of this model. We are starting to kind of see that in terms of, you know, like particularly for Heat, which has been around for longer, they have had a lot of brands kind of come to them and they've had more open collaborations, if you will, saying, oh, we're partnering with Hater Ackerman or we're partnering with this brand represent out of London. And they're kind of doing it in tandem and out in the open. And it's, it's interesting that they're willing to just say, this is happening in real time. Jacob Gallagher, fashion reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the time. Really appreciate it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition.